Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 43, The Brett Johnson Interview. Hello, Big Chillians. Welcome back to The Big Chill Podcast. For all our Chillite listeners, we've got a really good interview with Brett Johnson. He's a part of the group that owns Ipswich, Phoenix Rising, and a bunch of other clubs. That's during about the last 45 minutes of the podcast. But first, let's say hi to the boys. Sam, Eddie, how's it going? Yeah, pretty well. Had a, had a pretty good week. It was nice, obviously, to see the Europa League final last night. I nearly fell asleep during the most yeah. of the match, but the penalty shootout woke me up. And I actually mean that genuinely. I felt very tired during extra time. And then the penalty shootout brought me back to life. And then I tried to go to act, go to bed. And that was that was oh, not going to happen. Eddie's sleepy. <laughs> Eddie wasn't sleepy after a 22, <laughs> 22, 22 attempt long. <laughs> yeah. Eddie was wide awake. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. Uh, the thing I texted you guys the other day, uh, I had a doctor's appointment. I had to get uh, a vaccine shot, not COVID, a different vaccine for some of the work I'm doing in university. And I went in and the nurse pulled up my file on the computer and I, she's like, I'm behind her. So I, her back's to me and I can see her looking at the screen and she like looks at this picture in the corner of me and then turns around and looks at me and then looks back at the picture. Was it the mustache? Goes, was it the mustache no, picture? No, it was just literally a normal picture. She goes, you look much better in person than your picture. And then stops, turns back, looks at me again, looks at the picture and goes, yeah, you look a lot better in person. <laughs> so one, is that a good thing for someone to tell you that? <laughs> like, how do you take that? I, I feel like you know it's a good thing and you just wanted to say that someone said you looked really good. I don't think so, because that, that also implies that I am a terribly photogenic person. <laughs> Unphotogenic, you mean? Not terribly photogenic, because <laughs> yeah. that sounds good. <laughs> well, I'm just stunning. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I can give you the reverse once. I once went on a trip and I had my passport photo from when I was, like, I hadn't changed my passport. I guess I had probably the photo taken when I was like 17. And it was a good photo. You know, when you get a, you know, you get one and you're like, this is a good one. And I, no, went I guess through... I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Thought I thought I did. Thought I did. <laughs> Sam, you know, when you look good. Went through passport control and the person did the same idea and like did the double take of the passport. And they were like, this does not look a lot like you. I don't even know if I should let you in. That's a lot worse. <laughs> so you think that's worse? Oh, that's 100% worse. I'd rather guess, be yeah. disappointing in a photo than disappointing in real life. Like I can't do <laughs> oh. <laughs> I can't do anything about the real life. You can get a better photo if you take it. There are filters, there's lighting, there's things you can do. I just sort of like the weird disappointment that somehow he hadn't seen you until he saw the ID and then was like, oh my God, the guy who's handed this to me must be incredibly lovely. And then looks up at the disappointment as opposed to like, this is what he could have been. Now, Eddie, was it just a bad day or was that a flattering photo in well, a good time of your life? It was a really good photo of me at like 17 years old. So obviously... It was it was prime me, just pretty uni. much right. Prime so, me, you know that <laughs> prime was, Eddie. So, that was so you've gone downhill from seventeen on. Uh, in physical appearance, for sure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, so I, I, 
I'm hoping I swing back in my 40s, right? That's the goal. Like I, 40s and 50s might be strong for me, but but definitely <laughs> late teens, early 20s were probably my prime. And now I'm, I look forward to your age-defining renaissance that's coming in like 10 years, 15 I don't years. Think, I don't think that's age-defining. I think a lot of men have strong middle age periods. I think that's not uncommon. Where I have, I know people who you look at them and you're like, oh, you're a better looking 45 year old than you were 25. Maybe that was my issue. Maybe my picture, I was too young in my picture. Yeah. And then also I was coming off a flight, right? So I'd just been on like a nine hour flight. <laughs> I wasn't looking my best. So there were a number of things working against me, but it still, it didn't, I was going on holiday. It didn't make me feel great as I <laughs> kind of started this vacation. <laughs> to be insulted oh the start of the vacation start. that is bad yeah. if it was the end i can really see it because you're like yeah listen i've been drinking for seven days i'm a bloated corpse like leave me alone i'm happy i even made it home no. but to start your vacation and being told you look terrible that's not a good start i was just a bloated corpse with no excuse and sadly <laughs> i you know i i sent that picture in to try and get cast in the friends reunion but they wouldn't have they wouldn't take me well, because they had too many. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No more, no space for another one. So, I mean, yeah, the big talking point, I guess, is the Europa League final. I mean, that was, yeah, interesting now again, to say the least. Yeah, we should have seen it happen because I then saw the stat after the match, which was that the last fifteen times a Spanish team has played a non-Spanish team in a European final, the Spanish team has won. So, yeah. oh, I thought you were going to be really specific. I thought you were going to say like has won in an extended. No, no, or no, no like it's that. a pretty, it's, you know what I, I don't, I hate when stats get overly specific. That's actually just, I know very, that's why I thought you were going to do it to us. No, no, <laughs> that was, that was just a good statistic. Um, that's pretty dominant. Yeah. Yeah. Was, that's a good stat. There, there was another statistic I saw about the Europa League as well, where only one non Spanish or English side has won the competition in its current format. We've discussed that before though. It's yeah. It's just we, a crazy amount of dominance from yeah. Spain and England really. But yeah, and the other interesting stat, right, which in spite of the fact that he faced 11 penalties yesterday, David De Gea hasn't saved a penalty since 2016. Yeah, That's, six wow. years. I think it's 30 or something like that wow. that he had got yeah. to. So that I mean, was the question, right? Do you, knowing that, does that have to be one of your subs? Well, that's, and for anyone who was watching the BT Sport coverage, they did kind of jokingly refer to that because I think United did have a sub. They didn't use all of their substitutions. So they could have pulled the the Holland in the World Cup, right, when they brought Tim Krul on just for the penalty shootout, which got a backlash at the time, but then he saved a penalty and they qualified. So it kind of looked like a masterstroke. Personally, I think that saving penalties is just more luck than it is skill. That being said, I mean, they said that during the time Henderson has saved six penalties since uh, De Gea last saved one. And considering the fact wow. that Henderson wasn't even playing professional football in 2016, that's, you know, he that's has, depressing. He's <laughs> and also has been a backup for a sizable chunk of that time. So he's not faced that many. So my question is, how, how often does it get that far? I've well, never seen that before. So that was the longest penalty shootout in the history of European finals, for starters. Wow. When was the last time you saw a keeper take a penalty? Oh. Uh, well, well, seeing both keepers take them is unusual, because sometimes you do have keepers who take them relatively early on. I, I okay. am, I'm one of those people who advocates for keepers taking them pretty early, because 
I'm just in favor of which is what the you saw contrasting styles a little bit between the Villarreal keeper and David De, David De Gea, which was the Villarreal keeper basically took a goal kick from the penalty spot. <laughs> it looked I think that, so. I it was probably one of my most satisfying penalties just because of how it just kept climbing with all the power. That's the he move, cranked it. right? Like you, you're talking about someone on the pitch who is pretty much the only person who consistently practices just kicking a ball very hard from a dead, like a yeah. dead ball position. And to me, if, ripped it. if you're a goalkeeper, that's just what you do. You just think, right, goal, goal kick, put my foot through this one. And maybe even if he gets in the way of it, he's, it's still going in. So Knocks his hand off. <laughs> yeah, especially David De Gea, who did actually get his hand on a couple of them, but never looked like saving one. I think Sam and I spoke about it before. The impressive thing wasn't that it went for 22 penalties. The impressive thing was to have 22 penalties on target, which shouldn't be impressive. There's no reason to miss, but fundamentally you would have thought at some point someone was going to have, particularly it was raining, that something, yeah. even just by through bad luck, you might have slipped or something. So yeah. just having 22 on target is unusual. And what was impressive too is some of them were really good penalties like somewhere like top corner you know like those risky ones that you're usually gonna see someone fly it over or hit the post and you know they were going for it yeah i think a couple of players got a bit lucky i think some of those ones that did go top corner and stuff they probably you know it was probably squeaky bum time uh, when it left the foot i'm sure there was a couple of them there who thought "Uh uh-oh i may have just blasted this over and then were very relieved to see it I mean, Luke Shaw came the closest right to losing it because his penalty should have been saved. So that's why I am pushing back against people who are putting all of the blame on De Gea because... Oh, it's all his fault. In another universe, it doesn't get as far as him based on the United penalties. I I, I mean, I agree with you, but I love the fact of saying it's all his fault just because of all the heat he gets from, you know a lot of United supporters and just to have the fact that you let up every penalty and then the only one that your team misses is off of your foot is just an amazing statistic. Like it, it, it makes him well, look so terrible. That, that, that was the most, that was the most American way to describe penalty shootdown ever. <laughs> it has no, it's come out that apparently De Gea ignored a lot of the logic with where people uh, go usually based on like sports science of someone always going that like, bottom that left well. top right and apparently he's now it's come out that he's kind of ignored some of it which has probably proven pretty detrimental if they went say exactly bottom left he doesn't go bottom left so it's probably that's maybe not going to help him i don't know i don't know how you win on that one i understand when you when you get players who have very specific trends like there are moments, right, where, where you can see the breakdown of a penalty taker and they almost put it in the same spot every time. Like they have a spot. But apart from that, I mean, it, it gets into a whole series of mind games, right? Which is, okay, I know he usually goes bottom left and this is the biggest penalty of his life. Does that mean he goes bottom left or does he think, I know he goes bottom left, so he's going to go somewhere else? Like you can kind of get lost. If I were a manager or a coach, I think I'd be fine with telling the goalkeeper, look, Trust your gut if you have to. Like, you make sure that when at whichever way you go, you don't regret going that way. So, commit to it and go, and that's fine. I think personally. I mean, there's weird ones. Alan Shearer, I saw him. He did a penalty, like, clinic on I think it was BT Sport or the BBC at one point, and he said 
that and somehow I don't know how this didn't come out during his playing career for someone who took was very good at taking penalties that in his he would always look the opposite direction to the way in which he was going to take his penalty so if you had learned that this would have looked a little bit he's hilarious. telling you which he's telling <laughs> yeah. you which way he's going but here's the thing then if someone saves that then does he then do the opposite next time because he well, thinks people know double... or does he think that they think that they know so he's going to still do the same because they think that he's going to shift <laughs> I, don't, I mean i don't I... that's what i mean it's it's it's, it's all luck like yeah. you, you you can play I, that mind I... game both ways because even if you're the person taking the penalty you can also like 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 eddie said you know like i think jamie vardy that match against the Spurs, he had two penalties and went the Spurs. exact same spot Spurs. both times. Spurs, Just, sorry, he, he didn't. He I didn't, know. I know. All he right. didn't All switch right, to the NBA quickly. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just think, like, I think back to like the interview we had with the throwing coach Thomas Skronomark when he was like, in a game that is multi-billion-dollar, where all these things matter. The tiny things you do can make a huge difference for like set pieces, how things happen. I think having all that data in front of you, where it's like four times out of 10 out of the last 40 penalties, you know, he goes bottom left. So go bottom left. And then at least you've got the data on your side to support that. And like Eddie said, you've still got to go full on for it. But I do think that if that is the tiniest percentage edge you can get, they're going to get it, right? I guess. But then you might have you might have picked up on other phys, you know clues of, well, if he takes this angle on the run-up, then he's probably going this way. So what do you do if the clue that you get in person contradicts the data set? So you've got kind of multiple, you know, you're trying to plot sort of multiple data points to decide which way you should go. I, I get what you're saying. It is logical. I just think it's tough in a penalty shootout. It's not like, I heard this story, like Andre Agassi spoke about Boris Becker at one of the most devastating serves in the history of you know the modern modern tennis game and he said that at one moment in time he realized that boris blackbacker had a tell and the tell was that he stuck his tongue out during his uh serve and the the direction in which he stuck his tongue out gave away the direction in which the serve was going and he said that the hardest part wasn't picking up on the tell it was not using the tell all the time because he thought if he uses the tell every point, Boris Becker was going to figure it out and change it. So he had to intentionally sometimes ignore the tell so that he knew he could get to a big point to then use it. Kind of makes sense. You're playing the long game, right? You can't give away what you know. So you've got to make it seem like everything's fine and you're just having a good game or something like and, and Andre, I guess he told this story. He waited until Boris Becker retired to tell Boris Becker this. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and Boris Becker then said, and I think he said that the way that he told him was that Boris Becker was speaking to him about it. And he said, you know, like of all the people I ever served against, you were the one. I, I couldn't get it. Everyone else found it difficult to return my serve, but you could just do it. And he said, I would go home and tell my wife, it's like he can read my mind. He knows where I'm going to serve. And then Andre Agassi was like, well, I hate to break it to you, but I, I kind of could. Kind of did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. kind of did. <laughs> I mean, but so if you had a clue like that, I get it in a penalty shootout. But when it's just historical trends, it becomes a little bit more complicated for me. Yeah. I get it too. Uh, but I guess the fact that we're talking about the penalty shootout, the previous 120 minutes were uh, 
it was a fairly uneventful part of the game, right? Um, Villarreal doing their very Villarreal thing, which is having like a defensive line, def- being very disciplined in what they do. Uh, Manu struggling at some points to break down, despite being the much better side, and kind of rinse repeat for 120 minutes. Did did you guys have any different take on it than that? Because that's kind of all I got, really, trend-wise. I mean, I felt like United were very dominant. Unable to take chances and didn't create as many chances as you would have expected. But against a Spanish side that's willing to sit back and defend, that's always going to be a challenge. But I felt that they, they had enough chances they should have won that match. And had they taken the lead, it would have completely changed the dynamic. So they'll be kicking themselves. They should have won it in 90 minutes. They should have won it in extra time as well. They had a... I mean... Yeah. The bizarre thing is that Solskjaer didn't make a single substitution the in, it, it, in, the, in the 90 minutes, which I get that when you're on top, you kind of, part of your temptation would be, well, don't change it. It's working. And sooner or later, this goal is going to come. The other thought would have been, where we are on top. If I could just th- throw some fresh legs on here in the sort of 70th, 80th minute, then maybe I've got a chance of really getting past Villarreal. That was bizarre. Especially when you have five. Right, I, I you know in the older times where it's three six. regardless of extra time, so it's six. I thought it was only five well, till the. It's it's five in the ninety, and then you get an additional one in extra time. Oh, so he had six. Okay. He could have made six substitutions, and in the end, he made. I mean, he, he used two of the substitutions in the end specifically for taking penalties because he brought on uh, Tellus and and Mata in the sort of hundred nineteenth minute, purely to take penalties. I always think that's an interesting move because if you're the player, that's going to be a lot of pressure. Like, you know, you've been brought up oh, yeah. to just you've got kick one that job. Ball. Yeah. One single and if, job. And if you mess up, that's you're going to get more scrutiny than uh, sort of a, a normal player would have had. And Stolskar would have had more too. But yeah. obviously it worked out because they both, they both scored. It's the worst. Like, even when, I mean, obviously not the same stage in any sense of the imagination, but even like when we play hockey, only three people can take the penalty and you kind of want to be that person that's like, I'll take it, but you don't want to say you'll take it and then miss it because then you're that asshole who was like, Oh yeah, I told you we should have had so-and-so, but Frank said he wanted to take it. You know, it's, that's a terrible feeling that, that, yeah, I don't like putting a player in that situation. That's gotta, that's, I mean, it's gotta make it harder for you to even make the shot because you're under more pressure. Well, you must have, a, I'm, I imagine Solskjaer must have spoken to them before. They would have discussed who would have... You would have gone into the final knowing that penalties were a possibility and you would have discussed the first five and the, the 11 you would have wanted on the pitch anyway. But I'm sure before bringing them on, you must have had a conversation and said to them, do you still feel up to taking penalties in the first set of five? And I mean, they're too experienced, but Matt, you know, Matt has taken penalties for United before. He took penalties at Chelsea for a while. Tellus took penalties at Porto. So you're getting to bring two really experienced penalty takers off the off the bench. It was interesting that he actually subbed Pogba off because he would have put Pogba, you would have thought, in in his you know nine-hour run-up. You would have thought he would have been able to take one. But, I mean, they all made him. Not much you can, not yeah. much you can say, really the entire outfield scored their penalties. Like they didn't do anything wrong in their fundamental. So yeah, for me, it it was, I I took the opposite take on the subs. I kind of thought, well, okay, you're dominant in possession, but you haven't actually tested really once in the second half for quite a while, actually, in terms of like forcing an on-target save. So even though you're dominant, it isn't working. So like you say, that fresh pair of legs, that extra something, uh, 
yeah, it was a bit of a confusing one for me. But I guess it's done now and it played to Villarreal, really, because all of those players got more tired, which meant Villarreal could be more content with just being sat there. Maybe as a final little point on the match, though, a number of English players did take penalties, a number of them who will be involved in the Euros. Maybe encouraging, just a little bit more penalty-taking experience, something that's often been a weakness for England sides, but you had Rashford took one, Luke Shaw took one, I think that might have been it of players who will be involved in Harry Maguire saw a lot get taken. Is that going to help? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) he did. I I did like the, I was impressed by, it didn't surprise me, the intensity of Villarreal during the penalty shootout. The intensity of the Manchester United players kind of on the touchline sort of took me a little bit by surprise just because I know you want to win, but, and not to be dismissive of the Europa League, but it does feel like as a Manchester United player, you have your sights firmly set on bigger and better things and that this kind of might have been a little bit of an end of season party, but they did seem fairly intense. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. As usual, I'm joined by Frank and Sam, and we have a special guest today in Brett Johnson, who is the one of the co-owners of Ipswich Town Football Club, also a co-owner of Phoenix Rising, and I believe the co-chairman. And I know that you have another, a number of other accolades in the business world, but I suppose for from our perspective, it's more your sporting, sporting involvement that interests us. But uh, Brett, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure and honor. Looking forward to it. I'm, I'm excited. I I never thought I'd be talking to one of the owners of Tucson FC. No, I appreciate it, Frank. No, I, I'm blessed. You know, I've got now uh, six clubs around the world that I'm associated with. and But I'm really proud of the opportunity with FC Tucson. Um, I, I And it's interesting because I've got an embarrassment of riches relative to different gear that I can wear. Um, <laughs> and uh, But I really like the kit from FC Tucson. Um, you know, they've got this really sharp Puma, yep. Puma gear. And then... Uh, I don't want to spoil their thunder, but one of my portfolio companies on my private equity side, which is called Benevolent Capital, a phenomenal company that I'm really proud of. Um, they're going to be a sleeve sponsor for FC Tucson, so I can't wait. That's cool. I, I guess maybe I'll just hint at it, um, though maybe Amanda Powers, the president of FC Tucson, will kill me. But uh, it's athletic, it's athletic <laughs> brewing. It's the leading non-alcohol craft beer, and it's just a phenomenal product. It's one of my one of many investments that I'm very proud of, but... I can't wait till that gets on the sleeve, and then I'll, then I'll really be wearing the FC Tucson uh, shirt nonstop. That's awesome. I'll be sleeping in it. My my wife will tell me, "Come on, you got to stop with this stuff. It's it's embarrassing." And that's that. It's it's super popular that uh, athletic brewing now. I see it everywhere. I mean, all all like the local like bottle shops here and stuff. They all carry it now. It's 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 gotten popular. It's, uh, I, you know, just a quick aside, I gave up drinking a while ago, which was a good decision, you know, but the only thing I really missed was a good beer. And uh, I had an athletic beer um, last summer and it changed my life. I literally, it was one of those classic stories where I loved it so much. I had to figure out how to invest. And I stalked, I stalked the CEO until he finally found, you know, found some equity that I could, I could, you know, invest personally. And then, you know, brought some friends and family, which I usually do into the investment, but no, it's a, it's a phenomenal product. I know the podcast is not about athletic <laughs> brewing, but I highly recommend to any listeners out there who enjoy beer, try athletic brewing because I guarantee you, you'll it'll change your life. Whoa, sorry about no that. Worries. That's okay. 
we normally, Brett, we normally have a rule of uh, no free sponsors. <laughs> okay. no, so <laughs> no, you go ahead. You go ahead, Brett. I, I, wait, let's, let's do this. We'll send Athletic an invoice for that part of it. You know, a, spon- okay, yeah, a yeah, sponsorship. That's, in that's really what Eddie meant. There's no free sponsors, so they've, they've just been yeah, charged. By, <laughs> by the way, that's... Yeah, I'm not going to lie, Brett. It's extraordinarily high, the invoice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I'll, bra- I'll brace them. So, you know. so I guess you, you've mentioned already that you have a number of clubs within your investment portfolio from a sporting side. How did that get started? No, sure. Uh, so I had an epiphany, as I describe it, uh, an entrepreneurial epiphany seven years ago, you know, where I recognized that Phoenix was the biggest and best market, you know, demographically, certainly, uh, without what I'd call proper professional soccer. Um, and I kind of ex- you know, expressed to my wife, I wanted to buy a soccer club and name it Phoenix Rising. Um, and, and all that made perfect sense until I did a little research and found out that there actually was a club there. It was called Arizona United. And it was at the time it was a USL third division team, but long, long story short, I ended up acquiring half of that club. And then not too long afterwards, my original partner kind of decided, you know, understandably that he didn't have what I would describe as the stomach to keep investing both the time and effort into the club, which gave me the opportunity to bring in Berkay Bakai and Mark Detmer, who are my partners on Ipswich now, and a host of other phenomenal investors. And and then we rebranded it to Phoenix Rising. And that's a whole story in, in and of itself. But uh, rebranded it to Phoenix Rising. We built a stadium. And as you know, most people are aware, Didier Drogba finished up his career with us. And, you know, I would kind of say kind of the rest is history in that, you know, we've done very, very well on the pitch. Um, and we've done very, very well off the pitch. But to kind of answer your question about additional clubs, I I started to recognize how USL in particular could be a driver of social and economic change in communities with the utmost respect to MLS, given how expensive the franchise fee and given the fact that by extension that then kind of lends itself towards bigger markets. USL is really positioned in my mind to secondary markets. And so I bought the rights to Rhode Island and I very proud of the project that we have there just outside of Providence in, in Pawtucket, where we're going to create thousands of jobs, hundreds of millions of dollars of drop to the bottom line, sort of tax, incremental tax revenue to the city and to the state. And it's transformative. And it's in a great soccer community that, you know, prior to us coming in, their choices are they have to go to, you know, Foxborough to watch the revolution. They got to go down to New York or they're going to just watch it on television, which, you know, Rhode Island, unbeknownst to a lot of people, is consistently in the top 10 for media ratings for soccer. So, just highlights what an untapped market is. So anyway, just a long way of saying Rhode Island was a catalyst. And then from there, we've been looking uh, overseas for a while and very proud that we now are, are owners of Ipswich. We, truly, I consider it one of the highlights of my professional career. And then I invested several years ago with Jordan Gardner in Helsinger and then, um, and then Tucson, it just became clear that it really kind of required attention to be successful. And I'm very proud that I now own that. And I love my working relationship with Amanda. And we're working hard to start to look in the Tucson market, similar to what we did in Phoenix, is where can we put uh, the team? Where can we build a stadium? And where can we start to transform the fortune uh, of, of that franchise, if you will? So apologies for the long-winded answer, but uh, hopefully that covers it. 
No, it was a great answer. And I guess in a way, before, you know, you've obviously been very successful in the business world and you are speaking about the kind of ventures into the sporting world from both a business perspective and the this kind of impact and as vehicles for social change. When you're buying in investing into these clubs, are you seeing them as business investments or is it much is it is the focus more on on what they represent within a community? It's a great question. It's both, you know, candidly, it has to be viewed under the prism of a business investment. It just has to, you know, you can't go out and raise private capital without the, that filter. Um, but, but that being said, increasingly private capital, you know, can go to a lot of places and increasingly ca private capital wants to make a difference. And it's ex that, that existed pre COVID, but in a post COVID situation, I really believe what I'll describe as high net worth strategic capital can put their money in a lot of places, all things being equal. They want to put it in a place that's going to positively improve the community. They, that's going to create jobs. That's going to provide, you know, from my perspective, sports in particular, because of the youth component, boys and girls playing in youth soccer and other sports that are associated with it, that alone has got an amazing impact. I'm very proud of how many kids are in the Phoenix rising uh, youth programs, the FC Tucson programs over time will we will be in the Rhode Island programs, et cetera. And, you know, my soapbox, which is not not a shocker, is that this country is being held back because of sort of the pay to play. So can we raise more money to really provide true access to the sport? And it's early days on that front. But, you know, we've been doing that in Phoenix. And over time, what I'd really like to see is start to raise a fair bit of additional dollars to really make sure that kids, and it doesn't have to be soccer, but just they have access to sports, more playing fields, et cetera. But anyway, to, to specifically, as I look at all of this, they, at, at time they have to pencil out at, at some point. You know, I'm not, I'm not in this, um, I don't want to kind of sit here and say like I'm in this, it's solely about philanthropy because the reality is I'm looking for a return on my investment, both in time and money, but I'm also looking for a return on the investment of those that back me and to put faith in the ventures that, you know, I'm now blessed to be a part of, but the reality is these, these do have strong ROIs. Um, these clubs, especially when you wrap it around real estate, like we're doing, and then looking at additional businesses that, that are then complementary to it. And if, if done right, you should be able to check all the proverbial boxes. You know, the last comment I'd make was, is that none of it's kind of for the faint of heart. Like I look at the Rhode Island project and the complexity is like trying to land someone on the moon. It's just so many different pieces, but at the end of the day, it's worth it. It's worth continuing to kind of put your right foot after your left because of the generational impact that it will have when you get it done like that, that, and if it didn't yeah, have that, then why do you know, it? It's great to hear. And I, I know the boys probably want to talk about some of the overseas investments, but you know, while we're talking about the Phoenix rising and stuff, um, you, you know, you, you make this great point that it's not, you know, just your personal investment, you know, it's, you're giving back to the community. You're 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 picking up the uh, the economy there and things like that. And you said that that's one of the benefits of being in the USL. Um, but the Phoenix Rising, they, I mean, they've had a great past few years. Um, I think you know they had that huge undefeated streak. Was that like two years ago? I think. And then you know last year we're doing great, and then got kind of hit by COVID and derailed a little. But um, you guys have a new stadium and everything. It, do you want to stay in USL or it, is it still the goal of, ever, of most clubs in USL to eventually move up to MLS? Or is that something that because you think it's a better market there that you kind of just want to stay in USL or in your sweet spot? Yeah, I mean, I, I, from our perspective, the quick answer is we couldn't, could not be more proud of 
being in USL. Um, and, and really to USL's credit, I think, especially if I think about the seven year arc that I have in the league, where it's come in the last seven years is arguably about as, as an impressive a growth of any professional league you're going to find. Uh, you can, if you look across the ownership group, east to west, the depth and breadth of and the caliber of the teams that are associated with USL and the product that the teams are putting on on the field, it's inspiring. Um, so I, I love the USL model. I don't think you're going to find a bigger flag bearer for the model than you will with me. You know, but that being said, everyone kind of knows that Phoenix is, in terms of its size, you know, it's what you would define as an MLS market. Um, you know, but the reality of the economics, I mean, what I would tell you is certainly, you know, this side of COVID, I'm very happy and feel very lucky that we didn't accelerate plans to go into MLS because the, the losses were staggering. You know, I think the league, I think MLS lost a billion dollars. I think on average, every team lost $30 million. I mean, that's a totally different zip code than what we're looking at right now with USL. And, and probably most importantly, given our new partnership with Gila River, our phenomenal stadium in Chandler, and the demand for tickets and sponsorship and merchandise, we're, we're on track very soon to be a cash flow positive professional soccer team. And the reality is the more that I look at the sport around the globe, I mean, and part of the challenge is that there are a lot of teams that are not cash flow positive, that don't have the benefit from it. And the reality is you can't bend the laws of economic gravity on this stuff forever. You know, just, you know, you're just the, the equity fairies are not going to kind of reward you, you know, to offset those losses. So it, from my perspective, it's why it's so critical to figure out one, how do you run, how do you run these things with proper sort of financial stewardship? And secondly, how do you bring additional assets to bear like real estate that ideally start to get stabilized and generate cash flow so that between all of that, <clears throat> it's providing that much more stability, not only for the investor group, but again, most importantly for the community. And so hopefully, hopefully that's what we're achieving. And we've made an incredible amount of progress on that in that regard. So don't know if I really answered your question relative to it, other than, again, from my perspective, you come to a Phoenix Rising game, I don't, I, it's, I'm biased, but I don't think you can enjoy the product more. And, and it's just a long way of saying, like, whatever happens in the future, we couldn't be more proud of where we are and how we've done in this, in this league and happy to continue to support it. So... Going back to your point, so community clearly is at the center of your investments about engaging kind of everyone kind of within and also within the wider community. Firstly, I guess, congratulations on the Ipswich kind of takeover. But, you know, that's a club that with a, nearly 100 years of history, if anything, above it. So lots of things embedded in the communities already, whereas maybe some of the investments in uh, the U.S. maybe are a bit more recent than that. Does the strategy to a club like Ipswich change compared to the market that you see in the US, do you still tackle everything the same or do you have any any nuances that'll change coming over to UK soccer? Oh, yeah, great <laughs> question. You guys, you guys do good prep work for this. Um, yeah, so, you know, first and foremost, the, what I call the gravitas of Ipswich, its pedigree, you know, 100 plus years as you've highlighted. And again, it, you'd be hard pressed to find a club. I mean, it's checked every box in terms of trophies, you know, UEFA, FA, you know, the predecessor cup to the Premier League. Um, Portman Road, 33,000 seat, iconic venue, and then truly a global uh, support base. I, I have received outreach from every corner of the globe from Ipswich fans that are beyond excited with the dawn of a new day. Um, so it's, it's certainly very different historically for me relative to what I would describe as kind of standing up 
soccer in these markets like Phoenix, like Tucson, you know, like we'll do in, in you know, Rhode Island. Um, and there's no, from my vantage point as well, there's no kind of real estate angle with Ipswich. Like, I don't look at Ipswich and think like, oh, great, we'll put a hotel in some, you know, multifamily housing and, you know, hopefully we'll do well on the pitch. The truth is it's all about how we do on the pitch because that's what the supporters care about. And candidly, that will move that community. Like, yeah, as in England and with some other foreign markets, but England seemingly more than anywhere else, these communities really live and die by their, the fates of their team. Um, and so what we need to do is ideally and God willing, first and foremost, get it up to championship. And then, you know, hopefully beyond there, as I say, anyone who's in England, if you're not aspiring to be the next Leicester city, then I'm not quite sure what you're doing. Um, but, but we do that and that community will start to thrive. And that's, that's the prosperity that we hope to inject in that club. And we're spending an incredible amount of time focusing on making a difference on the pitch with the players. And then also we will invest off the pitch. Like we just want people to walk into that stadium and uh, recognize that it's clean, the new scoreboard, you know, um, you know, just, just some elements where all of a sudden it's like, you know what, this is, these are some small boxes to check, but these guys did it. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I guess you've already touched on the fact that there's kind of a broken business model in a lot of football or soccer teams around the world. I think almost none that's no truer than in England where I think the overwhelming majority of teams are losing vast sums of money. So looking towards the lower end of, you know, in the championship and in league one, I guess Brentford have managed to kind of have the money ball approach and seemingly are profitable and also at the same time delivering results on the pitch. How much bigger of it, like how much bigger is this challenge in terms of trying to have a sensible approach to business, but at the same time, not compromising performance on the pitch? Yeah. Uh, again, a great question. I mean, my, my thought is what we should do is calendar call exactly a year from today. And, and I'll have a better perspective of, you know, how, how it's playing out. I mean, right now, as I kind of think about the landscape of players that we're hoping to attract and, and, What's been encouraging is with the news, with our arrival at Ipswich, with the added benefit, I think, you know, in a very positive sense of Ed Sheeran, you know, sponsoring the shirt, you know, in a short period of time, Ipswich has gone from kind of being off a lot of people's radar screen or certainly going in the right direction to be an exciting club. And I think teams, uh, players, agents, managers, other teams that have talent that, you know, not getting into their 18, maybe reaching out to loan players to us. So. I think we're very encouraged by early days in terms of what we're seeing, but the reality is it all depends on how, what team shows up next season and how they do. Um, and I think that will educate me a year from now relative to, you know, is it really, you know, how good a steward are we relative to investing and finding out how that the returns are on that, on the pitch, how much more are we potentially going to have to, to dig in, dig into on that side of it. But, you know, as everyone knows, we're kind of constrained as well by FFP, you know, the financial fair play rule. So, you know, we can't just come in and sign Messi and all of a sudden decide we're going to get this thing, you know, up to premier league. But I, I feel confident we're going to attract like we do at Phoenix rising. We're known as a club that players want to come play for, that we take care of these players that they, you know, that, um, and I, I think that when that word of mouth spreads, you know, that that's particularly positive. Um, and so I hope that virtuous cycle starts to show up at Ipswich. And then again, ideally, we get the enthusiasm. We start to win more than we lose um, and we get it up to championship. And then the real question at that point, because championship economics are particularly 
uh, challenging. You know, you, you don't have the same level of media and, and just equity appreciation of the Premier League. That, to me, is the real sort of that's the Darwinian nature of English sport right there in Champions League. How long you, you apply your trade there, how quickly you can ideally get out and then ideally not yo-yo back down to League One. Yeah, Ed, Ed, Eddie knows that all too well, being a, a Rover supporter. Blackburn has been stuck in there for a little bit now, and every year he has the optimism, but gets shot down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and and I will say you're you're already winning a lot because I, I I am a supporter of Blackburn Rovers, and uh, it's my particular cross to bear at times in life. But an example of a team that had foreign ownership come in. Now, this was a while ago in, in the case of Rouse. And I think a lot of the times people mistake the idea that there's within English, the English game, the idea is that you want to like a local owner and there's the opposition, there's kind of a knee jerk reaction when it's someone foreign. I think it's more approachability and availability is the key, which is something you seem to be winning. And when I look at the the ownership of Blackburn Rovers, the, you know, the fact that it's not that they never attend matches and it's not that they aren't, you know, couldn't tell you what the sort of best fish and chip shop in the area is. The problem is that the fans feel like they're just completely disconnected from what the ownership is now, and they have just no idea what's going on. I think that's the real issue, which I guess leads me to my next question, which is obviously the clubs that you've become involved in now, all very different and unique in their own ways. But how did Ipswich come about as an investment opportunity? Yeah. Um, so I, I guess just before I specifically answer that question, I it's not this is not um I, I'm not just paying lip service to this. Uh, and maybe it's just by the nature of the fact that I live in Los Angeles and all my clubs are out of outside of Los Angeles. But I really do view m- my role. And I believe that once I invest in these assets, that I am part of the community, that I, I, I take my role and responsibility in Phoenix very seriously, Tucson very seriously, Rhode Island, I couldn't have more reverence for what the task is ahead of me in that state. I mean, I really view myself as a Rhode Islander and trying to make a difference in that state. And then finally with Ipswich, I really feel I'm part of that community now. I'm not a foreigner to it and will be as sort of respectful and deferential of the role that I now fortunately get to play and my partners get to play in being a part of that community. Um, but but again, I recognize all that being said, especially with my American accent, I, no one will ever look at me and say that I, you know, I, I'm from Suffolk. Um, but uh, relative to Ipswich, the way uh, that that unfolded, as um, I said, I've talked about on a, on a couple occasions, is we've been approached on Newcastle, which was exciting. Um, and we had kind of rolled up our sleeves and we're going to take a minority interest in that position. The deal, as, as is often the case with these transactions, they're so complex and so many moving parts, it didn't come to fruition. Um, but it was a great experience for us. And a great deal of the capital that was behind us on that said, you know, hey, we loved what you guys did. We loved the thesis and too bad, but go find us something else. And um, ultimately we started, we, we had looked at Charlton and again, kind of another process where it was kind of competitive, a lot of moving parts. And what I would describe is very little about the process did I feel that we actually had control of. And so after that, we kind of took a step back and said, Look, we are very fortunate that we have a partner with with you know what I'll call very deep pockets that's committed to finding a way to invest in the broader asset class. So we started to say, how do we find something off market? And when we started to think about all the clubs that we can go at and look, Ipswich rose to the top for a lot of reasons. And and I got I have to give Frank Yallop, who was my first coach that I hired at Arizona United, 
some credit. He played for Ipswich and he had said to Berkey and Mark and me, he said, hey, you guys should think about Ipswich. So he, he planted a seed. But then when we started to think about, you know, Portman Road, again, the history, the gravitas, the accomplishments of the club and the fact that it's in League One. So you can buy it at a different sort of price range than you would for a championship or obviously EPL club. While I loved Newcastle, the reality of that is the risk reward is staggering. You know, all of a sudden you buy that and you do, you know, what's what happened to Swansea, all of a sudden you're down in championship and, you know, that's painful. And then the second thing is if you keep in the EPL, you're trying to figure out how to increase and improve already a fantastic brand, but you're competing, trying to compete against the big six right out of the gate. And that's not for the faint of heart either. So it's a long, long way of saying that we are so proud of being able to get the Ipswich deal done. And we spent a lot of time on it. And to Marcus Evans credit, um, he, he became committed to getting the deal done with us. And I really am grateful for that because, you know, COVID came in through a little bit of a, obviously a, a a detour on it. And ultimately, once we were able to get our, the ground beneath us and kind of recognize that all this would start to spin back again, very pleased that we all kind of stayed the course and got it done. And now the real work begins. And and so then what do you see as the realistic goals for the club over the next sort of five to 10 year period? How much of that is already mapped up out? You already said that the first year is kind of going to be a learning experience for you. But how much are you looking ahead to, to the next few years? Yeah. Um, so I think right away by putting Mark Ash in as CEO, I think having, you know, Paul Cook was brought in as manager. That was Mar- Marcus Evans had brought him in, but we had, we were in the loop and he was on our short list to bring in. So we fully endorsed that decision. And, you know, w- when I view it, you know, this is very much what I'll say Anglo and then American partnership, but, you know, emphasis on Anglo. Um, I, I really believe in that league. Um, y- you, you really have to have some, what I'll say, very competent English managers that's again that's not 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 to say that some foreigners that haven't been successful i'm not trying to discredit them for a second but i just wanted to be very very careful that i didn't take any of our success in usl and all of a sudden somehow think that that makes me or makes by extension our partnership um going going to be successful in those other markets so i'm thrilled with the team that we have from a five-year plan i mean again uh epl is absolutely within you know that that's our goal um, we will be very, very focused on it. I, I don't say that lightly. Uh, I try to emphasize with total humility relative to how challenging that's going to be. Um, but that's that's the objective. That's the aim. And we will continue to do everything we can to make that a reality. Um, and and I think that's important, just the, the never ending commitment to keep, you know, keep putting the right foot after the left. And again, no matter what, I've seen it with Phoenix Rising. You know, teams that we had we had this unbelievable season, 20 wins in a row. And, you know, we ended up kind of getting knocked out at, I think, in the quarters or the semis. You know, just it's a cruel sport sometimes. And the ball sometimes hits off the crossbar and just doesn't go in. Promotion and relegation sort of completely changes the game in terms of what the financial risks and the financial re- rewards could be. How different then is it ter- in terms of mapping out what how you budget and what the financial projections are? Because you're really going to have to consider, well, basically three major variables. I think I love promotion relegation. I really do. Um, I love the nature of it. And, and I truly, I wish we had it in North America. I, I do think that one of the benefits of uh, Mark Ashton now being in seat is if anyone's followed his career and his success at, at Bristol, very, very successful at finding talent, signing talent, and, and selling that talent on. 
And I do think that that's a very, very important line item for clubs. Um, and increasingly, I think one of our competitive advantages will be as we look to leverage, I think, the broader portfolio that because of the interest that we have in Phoenix Rising, because of, uh, you know, in a couple of years, we'll have Rhode Island, we'll have Tucson. I think one of the major benefits of USL is the player tra training monetization platform that it allows. And I think that's a complete blue ocean opportunity that foreign clubs are going to start to kind of really pick up on and start to recognize, you know, you can buy a USL club or have an interest in a USL club or just have an affiliation with the USL club. And how many foreign clubs do they have where they've got brilliant players that can't get into the 18? Not anytime soon, just, just too young, just haven't had enough professional minutes, et cetera. But all of a sudden you park them in some of these um, franchises in the U.S., and you can accelerate, you know, the ability for them to get those critical minutes. But then also you can probably give them a stage where they're getting viewed by, by a broader audience than, you know, what they're doing in the current academy system over in their respective countries. So that's my way of saying that I, I do believe the economics of where I suspect we'll see some upside that's not factored into any of what I'll describe as our financial pro formas is that can we start to look at leveraging the very successful Ipswich Academy that exists? And can we start to look at some, some type of coaching relationships and a technical consistency where all of a sudden you could say, you know what, let's bring them to Phoenix, let's bring them to Tucson, let's bring them, again, I'm biased, but let's bring them to Rhode Island. But all that being said, I don't, I don't really care. Bring it to Charleston Battery, bring them to Louisville. If they have a need for a foreign player and you know they're going to be well taken care of, and again, there's a consistency in terms of how they might approach their, their game plan, you know, I think the teams are going to be all for it. Um, so I, I look forward to seeing how that plays out. But again, I, one of my many sort of bullish case, you know, my, the bullish case on USL, why USL? One of the many reasons I kind of highlight is I, I think that player development side is completely untapped. And I bet you in the next five years, especially as you lead up to World Cup, I think you'll start to see that be a transformative part of the business model. So do you see that at Ipswich as well, like a real youth model approach rather than a, here's a ton of money, go find whatever you need to get us promoted. It's going to be like, okay, you may not see it in one year, but three years, you're going to really see something here because of the grassroots invested money. I think it'll be a little bit of a, I think it'll be a combination. I think we're impatient enough so that we're not going to sit here and say, okay, wait, we got this great crop of, you know, 14 year olds. Let's just wait, you know, five years. And, um, but I think it's a little bit of a hybrid. I, I, we, I've been excited by the calls that we've had kind of thinking about, you know, signings between now, you know, during this transfer window, there's some phenomenal talent for a lot of different reasons. You know, the transfer market's been hit pretty hard. You know, anyway, there's a, I think there's a great deal of talent that we're getting looks at that I hope and expect will sign at Ipswich, which will transform our on-field performance next season. But that being said, I also think you'll see a scenario where we'll probably be able to start to leverage the academy system as well. Um, both to see what's in the pipeline that, you know, can can um, at one day make an impact for Ipswich. But, you know, again, from that perspective, I've talked to Mark Ashton and, you know, I, I think as we kind of get our feet underneath us, as soon as the USL season ends, we intend on selling Rick Schantz, our coach from Phoenix Rising over, you know, likely be doing the same, you know, you know, with uh, John Gallus with the FC Tucson. Um, and then I, I just look at my Rhode Island franchise. That's two years out from when we'll be playing. But one of my thoughts is I might just look at hiring a coach from the Ipswich Academy 
um, who's got relationships with a bunch of the young players. And maybe what we do is immediately have him or her uh, come over, coach, bring three to five to six of these players that all of a sudden are going to be in an environment where their training ideally is going to go to the next level. The minutes that they'll get is beyond compare. And then the question is, are they ready that much quicker to make an impact at Ipswich? Or by extension, do we look at them and some other clubs would sit there and say, you know what, now this player can actually play and maybe there's a monetary value that got accelerated and or got increased because of those relationships. And, you know, that's where I start to get, as you can tell, I get to, I get excited about it because I do believe that's where in, in particular sort of the, the cross border elements of why some of this, you know, I, I'm always kind of looking for synergy across the board. And I, and I have to be sensitive because I am on sort of all sides of these equations. But at the end of the day, just because I want something to be done, you know, the other owners and my other partners would have to sit there and say, no, that makes sense. And whether it's at Rhode Island or Phoenix or Tucson or, again, somewhere else, it's all about, you know, how do you provide assets that maybe one plus one is a lot more than two. In that respect, are you inspired a bit by because I know like the city group, right, have expanded. They've got in New York and in Melbourne and they've kind of seen this sort of global impact. And then you also have Red Bull who've done a similar thing with Leipzig and Salzburg and also with New York. Is that the kind of plan that you're looking at where you are looking for real sort of really to have cement official ties between all of these clubs clubs and to see it as a global network more? Yes, for me, sure. For, for me, uh, again, with the benefit of being in Phoenix and Tucson and Rhode Island and, and Helsinger and, and Ipswich, absolutely. And, and you know, there, it's been fairly well publicized that Jordan Gardner and I have been looking at Australia, which I think for a lot of reasons, you know, is attractive. Um, but yeah, I, I look forward to, I guess what I'd say is across my portfolio is how do you leverage it? Um, and then, but then just with the partnership that I, I have with Mark and Berkey in Phoenix and in with Ipswich is we will look to, I think, you know, for a passport club, if you will, um, it, it would make sense for that partnership to include a club on the continent, um, for a lot of reasons, as everyone's aware, sort of player, player player visas and, and, you know, rights and that, that, that helps. Um, and especially done right. But I don't think you need, you know, city, it's been phenomenal the way they've been executing on that and, and seeing leverage across their portfolio. And then uh, I think Chen Lee, Chen's got Barnsley now, and he's got a host of other assets and he used to own Nice with one of my partners in Phoenix rising, Alex Shung. I think he's also starting to look at doing leveraging his platforms, but yeah, I, I do think you'll probably get a scenario where, uh, especially as more and more sort of private institutional equity goes into these assets, they'll start to try to think about, you know, again, how do you bring disparate pieces together and find ways to complement them? And I'm sure, as with a lot of things, it's a lot easier said than done. And so, again, it'd be another thing for us to flag sort of a year or two from now. You guys can kind of check back in and, and kind of see how it's going. But we've had a couple of players that we've had on loan from we had. Um, Corey Whalen played for us at Phoenix Rising. I think he was on loan from Liverpool. And it was fantastic. It was fantastic to see the kind of his quality and caliber and the impact he made when he was with us. And I look forward to just a lot more of that. It's uh, anything that helps to shrink the global footprint of this game and increase relationships and improve things, I'm all in favor of. Yeah, it makes sense. I can also understand from a player's perspective, if you have a choice of either going on loan to, say, Phoenix or Carlisle, and I mean that with the utmost respect to somewhere like Carlisle, but I might choose the warmer climate. But I think we'd be remiss to have an American owner on and not speak about 
a little bit about the proposal of the Super League, which obviously not something that you were potentially involved in, but there was also a massive backlash out of that to foreign ownership and American ownership within the English game. As someone who does approach the game from a sort of sensible business standpoint, how did you see uh, that plan? And then also how did that reaction, how were you, were you surprised by the reaction to it? And how did that maybe change what you see as your own planning with Ipswich or any other club? Yeah, my quick answer is I was thrilled <laughs> with the reaction to it. It deserved to die a quick death and it did. Um, I, I can't wait for the book or the movie to come out on it. I can't wait for some phenomenal, you know, investigative journalist to really have done the sort of definitive piece on it because I'm particularly curious. I'm not trying to absolve them of responsibility, but I'm, I'm curious to understand what Cronky or, or the Glazers true depth and breadth of their understanding of, of that movement. Like I highly doubt that they were kind of sitting at the table, hashing this out. I, I get the sense that they had some lieutenants that were driving it and thinking it was the smartest thing ever. And then they kind of woke up and got hit with a shovel and then rightly so, and very quickly said, unwind this, you know, and get me out of here. This is not what I signed up for. And, and, uh, but again, I, I could be completely wrong. It could be that they sat there and said, you know what, uh, we should be doing this because this is the way it is with our assets here in the United States. And, you know, so I, I just can't wait till I get the answer on that. Um, but e either way, regardless, I don't absolve any of them with culpability regarding it, because at the end of the day, none of that went forward without at some point their green light or blessing. Um, but I, I think it was phenomenal in terms of the global, unified, cathartic, you know, uh, rejection of that. And, and long may that live and last, uh, because it is so anathema to all of us that truly love the beautiful game. So anathema relative to the heart and soul of what I think that makes this, this sport so special. And, and, you know, the, the concept of this smaller club, the lesser cities of the, if you will, and the countless other examples that you see all the time. I mean, uh, what was it yesterday uh, with the PK shootout? And anyway, I'm so busy that I only get to kind of get. Oh, Villarreal yeah. in the. I mean, I, yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, so, you know, it's like, I love, I love to see stories that that's what makes sport compelling. I, I, that's why I refer to sort of March madness in the United States. The reason why people find that so compelling is the Cinderella story where you get, you know, 15, 16 seed knocking off a number one or number two. I mean, how exciting is that stuff? So anyway, it's a long way of saying that um, I, I hope that that's truly there's a very firm sort of set of nails in that coffin and it that never kind of revisits itself. And but it becomes there has to be some changes. That being said, there's clearly elements of sort of the economics of the broader sport that need to be assessed and looked at. And. Like I said, there's only so long that sort of anyone can bend the laws of economic gravity until something comes home to roost. And I think for a long, long period of time, it is staggering how much those clubs spend with, you know, less of a concern in terms of ROI just because they can. And, um, yeah. you know, so that that it'll be interesting to see how this work grows. But relative to our involvement with Ipswich, you know, I think most people kind of, again, recognize that we really are sort of genuine relative to, you know, our uh, what I would say is are being aligned with, again, the true heart and soul of what, you know, of the sport.
so we can get an official statement just in case uh, tomorrow like Stan Kroenke calls you up and says hey we want Ipswich to be in the European su- the the tractor that pulls the European Super League next year it's a firm it's a firm no. it's a firm no. okay. I, but I did joke that I said look it's easy for me to say this because they didn't call me up and invite yeah. me to join the Super League but you know but no I mean again I I I do think that there was probably would also be interesting to understand is were there some outreach to some clubs where maybe they you know they said like are you kidding me like this is a bad idea like we're not we're not going behind it like it would have it would have been interesting just imagine the goodwill of, you know filling your favorite of the big six in the UK if if instead of being very quick to kind of disavow it if they had just said from the outset like look you guys are missing a trick here but again I think it was one of those things where. In hindsight, everyone could look at it and be like, God, of course it was such a bad idea. But, you know, at, at the time, I think they, you know, they thought like, you know, we're going to wake up and the global Man U fan base is going to be thrilled because all of a sudden it's like, isn't it so exciting we get to play, I don't know, Barcelona four times a season, you know, which, by the way, after a while would really, really get boring, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe because I'm not, you know, I don't know. We're, we're in agreement with you. It was a, we hated the idea. I'm a bit more skeptical in that part of me fears that it was just more of a PR disaster than it was the, like a conceptual one. And that with enough time, they might be able to sort of put it back on the table in a way that is more digestible for a global fan base. That's my big concern. I hope it doesn't happen, but that's my big concern. Yeah, I hope so as well. I mean, I, one of the things that I'd commented on before, and I, you know, probably apologize to anyone who, who, listen to that comment and this one because i'm repeating myself but my question is whether or not it has portends changes here in north america and you know i I actually i i think jake edwards president of usl i think he was recently i think he publicly stated that usl is in favor of pro rel and i was pleased to see him say that i didn't listen to the interview i just kind of saw some sort of soundbite on it but um you know, from my perspective i do think the lack of pro rel in north america holds it's not a bold statement it holds the sport back and, um, you know, so it'd be interesting to see. I think MLS is a little bit caught in a box on that because, you know, what are you going to do? Tell David Tepper, who spent $300 million for a franchise, you know, oh, by the way, we went with ProRail and your team is now in a different league or I don't see how that works. But USL has potentially got some flexibility to do that. And it could be interesting. And as, a, as someone who's kind of fairly well invested in the league across a bunch of teams, the reality is I'm all in favor of it. If I, I like the Darwinian nature of pro rel and I, you know, it, it causes every single game to matter and it causes, uh, you know, you have to have a, uh, such a focus in terms of performance. Um, so anyway, we'll see, but I, I certainly hope in my lifetime, we start to see pro rel here. So obviously promotion relegation is something massive for you and um, playoffs are obviously incredible as well. That's some, that's a massive spectacle. The championship playoff final is, uh, considered like one of the richest games in the world because of getting into the Premier League, etc. So fully understanding why you'd be against the European Super League just for the promotion relegation side. What, one question I kind of was thinking, though, was I know these takeovers can take quite a long time from due diligence, feasibility and all that. But were you worried with your coming on board at Ipswich and the fan backlash against the Cronkays, Glazers, Fenway Sports Group, that there may be an unfair guilty of association at foreign ownership. Maybe the Ipswich fans would start thinking, we've seen all this backlash against foreign ownership. Did you worry? Did you think it was going to kind of change tack in any way? Or was it still full steam ahead? Because you know that your plan is, you know, for the betterment of the club, the growth, the development of the club, etc. Yeah, I, I. so the quick answer is no, we weren't concerned about it. We, we closed 
our Ipswich investment, I think the week before the Super League was announced. And, and in some respects, I think I'm very glad that we did just um, from a timing perspective. Um, but I, I don't know if it would have mattered too much either way. I, I Again, I would just go back to given what I would describe as the overwhelming complexity of acquiring any professional sports team, especially one in a different country. I couldn't be, I was so thrilled that we ended up getting the deal done. We had obviously worked very hard. It was 14 months of due diligence. We invested an incredible amount of money. You know, you end up spending a lot of money on a host of different areas, legal fees, you know, accounting, due diligence, all that other good stuff. Um, so thrilled that we got done. And the, and the reality is I wasn't hundred percent certain that Marcus Evans were going to stay the course relative to the sale. Um, you know, it was, I think an emotional issue for him, understandably, he's invested a lot of money. He's been involved with it for 14 years. He couldn't be a bigger supporter of the club. But it's just a lot as a, as a long, long way of saying um, I, I really love being involved with Ipswich. Like I, I really like I couldn't kind of script it better. Like there's something very, very special about the club. There's not. Um, and, and again, I, I so that to me makes me very proud. I'm, I'm pleased that we kind of had the what I'll call is the stomach and the fortitude to see it through, because there were definitely some times where, again, it, it takes a lot of twists and turns and. So I'm glad we stayed the course to get it done. And um, and I think I, I, I suspect that there are going to be some people who kind of look at that. And I've had some people out reach out to me and say that they're now I think it's accelerating other prospective ownership groups to come together and try to make other deals happen, which is not not too surprising to me. So it'll be interesting to see. And we're you know, we don't we're not unique in getting credit for that because there are a lot of other phenomenal investors that are making things happen in the broader sport. But from my perspective, it really transforms what I think is a very good base that we have in this sport now owning that asset. And I'll be, I'm excited to sort of see where we potentially take it from here, but regardless, nothing's going to change our focus again on just improving the on-field performance of that team. Full stop. Before you go, I just had one quick one for you. Uh, I want to go back to you. You talked previously about Ed Sheeran being the sponsor. Um, now I know he's from the area and he's an Ipswich fan, but is, is, is your real goal to try and find some closet super fans that are great players? Like, do you know that Harry Kane is a huge Ed Sheeran fan and this is your way of getting him onto the club is to have him wear Ed Sheeran's face 24 hours a day? <laughs> hey, Harry, if you're listening, please reach out to me. You know? uh, so, uh, no, I, you know, I, I look from my perspective, um, it, it was so exciting because he's about as big a name as you get. I mean, I, the statistics that I understand, someone told me yesterday, I think he's got 80 million followers on, on Spotify. I mean, it's just beyond comprehension how big it, an artist is. What I, what I think is particularly compelling is will that sponsorship, will that relationship actually portend a change in sort of the dynamic between what I'll say is, you know, uh, arts, and, arts and sports, you know, music and sports. Will you now start to see, you know, a Taylor Swift, a Beyonce sponsoring the shirts of, you know, an NBA team with the thought of announcing, you know, an upcoming concert or whatever it might be. But I, I think it's a phenomenal trend. I love the fact that he's so passionate about Ipswich and I can't wait to meet him um, and hope hope that's fairly soon. And and then I also hope that Harry Kane is a huge Sharon fan <laughs> and has to play for his team. So that, that'd be good. We'll be happy to pick him up in the offseason. Well, if, if he's not, Eddie is, so you can sign Eddie up. <laughs> I, if, by the way, by the way, if, he, if he's a striker, he should let us know soon because that's, that's one of the key, key positions we're looking for. Oh, I'm my talents, you know, I'd, I'd have to dust off some boots, but uh, they might be 
you know, who knows? Who knows? I'll give it a spin. But Hello. thank you. I know you've got to you've got to go, and you've been really generous with your time. So, yeah, I, I look. I can't thank you enough. I always appreciate the opportunity, you know, to to talk about what I'm. I feel very very fortunate and humble to be able to do. Um, and so it's a real pleasure. And and thank you. And I and I would welcome you know, hopefully before uh, even sooner than next year. But would welcome like it'd be interesting. To, for us to calendar a year from now and kind of we can kind of look across the board and see where all these things have gone but if not sooner but in the meantime i really appreciate all of your guys time and phenomenal questions and then frank let's see each other oh, for sure let's see each other in tucson and then sam sam, sam join me for you know and maybe ed, ed will fly up from from paris but join me at portman road you guys are all welcome to join me in portman road i think we'll have a, hopefully a good party in, in at the home opener in August, God willing. That's great. Oh, well, we'll count on, count on us being there. Yeah, and, uh, my, who knows, my, I'll send you my <laughs> scouting video. Maybe I'll be on the pitch that day. So we'll, 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 we'll see. that's right. You might be busy. You might be, I might be yeah. watching you from a different seat, but I can still have I'd a couple of drinks before the match just to loosen. Up. Uh, I, I, you can have a couple of athletic beers. Oh, exactly. I had to do it. I, there I, we go. It's great. I had to do it again. I'd gotten past the whole sponsorship. Great thing. for us. It's more money. <laughs> it's come full. It's come full exactly. circle, Brett. Well done. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> That's it. I didn't even pitch aura, you know, that's anyway. All right. Well, look with that, I really appreciate it. And and thanks for accommodating my little one as he, as a, uh, I think next, I think next year he's going to want to be on the podcast. So we'll have to to give him some time. Yeah, we'll have him. We'll have him on. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Take care, guys. Thank you. Best of luck.